all that further. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us that we might know you, that we might understand you, that we might understand your love and your grace towards us, that we might also understand what it is you ask of us and what it is to walk as your children. So Lord, we just pray that you might speak to us this morning. This is a big passage. This is a challenging uh, passage in in many ways. So Lord, I pray that you might uh, minister to us through the power of your spirit, that you might speak through these words, that they may come to uh, life in us. And Lord, that you might uh, speak through me, Lord, for your glory and for your purposes and for our good, we pray. Amen. We might be a little bit uh, worried having sort of seen the size of that passage there. Um, But then again, would you rather have two messages very similar uh, on all of this or the one? And uh, my calculation was that you might prefer the one uh, and that some of it is, is a little bit repetitive. Paul begins here for us in verse 17 of chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And Paul actually is not picking up, first and foremost, from uh, chapter 4 verse 16 where he's uh, left off, where, where David left us last week, where he's giving this analogy of the church as being the body that, that God uh, grows up together He's not picking up from there. In fact, though the argument will go on to uh, put that in context, here, Paul is picking up from chapter 2, verse 10. There, if you can remember back, after having spoken about justification, that is, how we are made right before God, so that we may avoid his judgment and receive his favor, and Paul has summarized it in this way, chapter 2, verse 9, that by grace you've been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works. So he said here for us that your justification, how you're made right before God, is completely grace-driven. That is, it's not earned. And it is completely one-sided. That is, that you haven't done anything to contribute to it either. But the next sentence here, chapter 2, verse 10, and this shows that the two ideas are linked in Paul's mind, now speaks of sanctification. So if justification is how I'm made right before God, sanctification is how I actually become more like God. Paul says, chapter 2, verse 10 here, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So sanctification and justification, becoming more like God and being made right before God are linked in Paul's mind here. You can't have one without the other. And you might be wondering, well, you know, is this important? Well, you you need to stay with me because yes, it is. Paul is saying that if we have been justified before God by the work of God, as he said here, within you, then you will firstly necessarily be being sanctified before him that is if you have truly been made right before God then you must also be being made more like God by him sanctifying you too that's a necessary response so firstly necessarily you must be being sanctified but secondly that your sanctification your becoming more like God is evidence of your justification It is evidence that you have already been made right before God. So that Paul and James, historically at times, misunderstood and put at odds by Christian writers, are actually saying one and the same thing. So that Paul will say in Ephesians 2, 9, that uh, salvation is completely through grace alone and not by our works alone. And he'll at another point use Abraham as an example to prove this in Romans chapter 4. Normally, Abraham being at times the example of that actually salvation comes through what you do. He makes a point to say, actually, no, it has always been this way. It has always been that you're saved only by grace. And yet at the same time, James chapter 2 verse 18 will say that you can't have a saving faith without works also. And we'll use Abraham as an example. Say, was Abraham not saved because he did what God asked? It's not enough for him to have just said intellectually that he believed and agreed with God. He's saved by the fact that he actually was going to do what God had said. 
You say, well, it's always been the case that one is saved by what they do. And yet, Paul will say, it's always been the case that one is saved because of what God has done. So who is right? Well, they both are. They both are. What they're doing is seeing the very same thing from two perspectives. You are saved by grace, by God's gift. But that salvation always leads to a fruit. It always leads to a response. God's gracious justification always leads to and is evidenced by a gracious, progressive sanctification. Progressively, gradually, bit by bit, by increments, becoming more like the God who has saved you. The sanctification isn't that you're perfect, far from it, and you won't be until Christ returns. But sanctification can be marked in three ways. That one, you're in the fight. Romans chapter 7, Paul uh, looks at his own life and really could be summarized in that way. That he says, why is it that I know what's right? I want to do what's right, and yet I find myself not doing what's right. And why is it I know what's wrong and I don't want to do what's wrong, but sometimes I find myself doing what's wrong? He says, how can this be? And yet really the hopefulness is that sanctification is shown, the fact that he really is God, so he really has been made right before him and is becoming made more like God, is shown him he can see the problem. He's in the fight. Sanctification is firstly that you're in the fight. Secondly, it's that you keep getting up. You may well fail. You may well be flawed at moments. But sanctification is shown by you keep getting up. And that thirdly, sanctification is shown that every now and again, you land a couple of shots. Every now and again, you get a couple of things right. It's not that you're perfect, but it's that you're in the fight, you keep getting up, and every now and again, you land a couple of shots on it. And Paul tells us here in chapters 4 to 5 of Ephesians what this sanctification looks like. This matters because this is the context of him talking about us walking out our faith together that he's uh, left us uh, in chapter 2 there. And now this is what it looks like practically. And it's going to be about putting things on and putting things off. And in case you get discouraged, in case you're wondering, well, where's the hope to really endure here? Where's the hope to persevere? Where's the hope to actually see this battle out? Of course, actually, when we come to chapter six in a couple of weeks, we'll find that actually that armor that God gives is what helps us through that battle. But here this morning, we think about what this walk looks like. We'll reflect on the shape of the new life that we're to walk in here. You may have noticed, maybe not, but up until the point we've got to chapter four, there hasn't been a single imperative used. That is, there's not been a single sort of command, do such and such. Well, now Paul will more than make up for it, because here we have a, a glut of them. And we'll see that actually the gospel is a way of life that is to affect everyday life. Turn with me there to chapter four, verses 17 to 24. And the thing we'll see here is Paul spell the... Uh, the need for change. That's what we'll see there. That there's a need for change. That we are to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul has uh, told us of the gift of leaders to the church. And he said that the purpose of those leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, firstly. And then secondly, he's talked about that growing up into maturity, into full adulthood. Well, now Paul wants to state his case why the Christian must grow up out of old habits. Perhaps Ephesus was uh, familiar with a problem that we know all too well today. I'll call it Peter Pan Christianity. And ironically, it's a curse that does seem to affect uh, men more than women, but it's this immaturity, this fleeing from responsibility, this prolonging of adolescence and juvenile thinking. And it misses a tragic irony that Peter Pan is forever a boy, never a man, because he's dead. And this Peter Pan Christianity doesn't see that to walk in the old ways that seem to offer the promise of so much life, so much youth and fun and freedom, is really death. We are to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And for clarity's sake here, what Paul means, what we can take from it, is that those who are not yet 
Christians. If you're a Christian, then you're to walk like one. How does Paul summarize how non-Christians live? What does he think that the problem is for their pattern of life? Well, much as we saw some differences in the way in which uh, both the gospel and the message of the world views salvation, there's differences in terms of the way we live, in terms of sanctification. Earlier, we've said that justification, how you're made right before God, and sanctification, actually living rightly, are connected. He's said that in chapter 2, he's insisted for us here that salvation's by grace. And that showed a huge difference with the message of the world. The world says that I'm already, in and of myself, good in nature. There is nothing wrong with me. That's what the world says. It says I'm saved. That is, maybe I live the life of most fullness, most joy, rather than futility in purpose and meaning and freedom, by being my most authentic self. Because I am by nature good, what I really need to do is to be who I really am. I need to be liberated to be who I truly am, to do what feels right in me and for me and to do what I want. And the threat to my salvation, the threat to living a life of meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment, the thing that might stop that is any rule, any responsibility, any boundary that might place any sort of a gap between what I want to do and what I do do. There ought not be any gap between what it is that I truly want to do and what it is that I do do. That's not being authentic. The gospel says, on the other hand, that I'm saved, that I live a life of fullness and joy instead of futility, in purpose, in meaning and freedom, by being saved from who I really am. Paul Soldis, chapter 2, verse 1, that we're dead in trespasses. We're trapped in sin, that we're by nature children of wrath. And the threat to my salvation is, chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, that I might simply follow the course of this world, that I might follow the course of the spirit of the prince of the air, that I might just simply live out the passions of my flesh. If the world believes that salvation equals expressing my true, my authentic self without repression or restriction, then what does it really look like when that is lived out, that worldview? Well, Paul will now answer that for us. And in fact, it may be even more offensive than his analysis of salvation. And that was very offensive, wasn't it? But look at the three ways in which this way of life is characterized. We see how it affects all of life for people here. It affects the head, the heart, the hands. It affects your beliefs. Think about things, what you love, your heart, and also your hands, your behavior firstly it affects the head look at verse 17 here that they're walking in the futility of their minds in verse 18 it talks of being darkened in understanding living in ignorance this is offensive isn't it you see it firstly play out in wrong thinking secondly you see it come out in wrong affections or lack of affections here verse 18 it speaks of their hardness of heart that drives their ignorance. Speaks of them being callous. There's, uh, the word there, it's beyond caring. You see, it actually desensitizing people. And thirdly, you see it in the hands, you see it in behavior. Verse 19 here, that they've given themselves over to sensuality. Doing whatever feels right, whatever makes you feel good. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity finally manifests itself in wrongdoing. And then yet we get this transition here, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Why? Paul's had to give this warning right off the bat. And yet he's saying here, that's not the way you've learned Christ. Why? The most simple answer is the correct answer. They are tempted to still walk that way. That's not the way that they've been taught Christ. But they are tempted to walk that way too it seems tempting to walk in the way they once did what were they taught then well we get some insight into this verse 22 here that to put off your old self 
That's the antithesis of the world, isn't it? The world is saying, don't let anybody else stop you being yourself. The gospel is saying, for goodness sake, put off yourself. Put off your old self. Step away from who you are. Why? Two reasons here why they should put off their old self. Let's see verse 22 here, that it belongs to a former manner of life. Belongs to the past. And secondly, it is corrupt through deceitful desires. To try to put it as simply as I could, what I want isn't always right. And so how do we change? Verse 23 here, that we're renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. Verse 22, to put off your old self. How do we change? By being renewed in the spirit of our minds and putting on the new self. So what does this new man, this new woman, look like? Because this isn't a unique idea. We find it in other places. We find it in other religions. Some sort of a sense of a new humanity, a new man, new person, uh, uh, with sort of full potential unleashed. It's not only in religion. We see it in sort of... Uh, political ideals as well to Oscar Wilde from one side of the political spectrum writes with the abolition of healthy individualism nobody will waste his life in accumulating things and the symbols for things one will live and his idea was that if you have this socialist society then we'll truly have a real a new sort of humanity and yet on the other side of the political spectrum too you have Nietzsche writing of the overman or the ubermensch that person who was able to resist societal norms and expectations, be able to control impulses and passions, and would be a new, free, renewed person. It's not a unique idea. So what does it look like for Paul here? Paul has spelt out for us the need for change, and now he'll show some of the difference it makes. And we'll see that in a couple of different sections here in verse 25 to 32 and into chapter 5, verses 3 to 14. And it's all about this putting off and putting on. It's all about dressing for success. The great designer Coco Chanel writes that dress shabbily and they remember the dress, dress impeccably and they remember the woman. It's about putting off and putting on, dressing for success. So we might ask why this particular list, and we get the pretty lengthy uh, list here of Paul from different things that we ought not to do and that we ought to do. Why does Paul pick these things? Is this everything he could pick? Why doesn't he pick certain other things? Well, three stabs at maybe why it is that Paul does this. Firstly, there's a sort of machine gun approach. I think that Paul is hoping that he fires out all of these different things here and he's going to catch you with at least a couple. You know, there might be some in that list you think, oh, good, yeah, I don't do that. But, but I bet there's a couple in there, isn't there, that, that catch you. And I think that's the idea. Secondly, it's inexhaustive. I don't think he's given everything at all. No, he hasn't intended to. What he's intended to do is just make sure that at least a couple of them uh, catch you off guard. And thirdly, I think there's probably an element of insider trading here. That is that I think he knows this crowd. And he knows that many of these particular things our struggles for them. Perhaps the list might be slightly different where you're writing in 2021, I don't know. But we have this repeated pattern here that firstly, there's a negative to put off, there's a positive to put on, and then there's a motivator that drives you towards it. First thing we see here is about truth. Verse 25 here, put away falsehood. That's the negative. The positive speak the truth. Why? What's the motivator behind that? For we are members one of another. It's very similar to what David was talking to us about last week from chapter 4 verses 15 to 16. However, it's important here. What is Paul not saying? I want to share with you something he's not saying here. He is not saying that you should say everything that you think. That's not what's going on. When he talks about speaking the truth, put away false, it's not saying say everything that you think. You might perhaps know, perhaps, so, you know, some of those people, honest to a fault. Do you know where it goes a bit beyond honesty to tactlessness? Okay. It's not saying, say everything you think. There's a good filtering that sometimes we need to do, isn't there? <laughs> Come to 10 and think whether this is really going to be beneficial. 
but put away falsehood, speak the truth, because we're members of one another, we belong to each other. You know, the times in which you have to say something, and they come, there are moments in which you have to say something, actually should be relatively infrequent, I think. Times in which you really have to say something, I actually think are quite infrequent. And I think that they should be worth it. Make it be about something that was worth doing it for. Not just some petty thing that you could have let go of. In fact, actually, if you find in yourself that actually you're frequently in conflicts, I might suggest that you maybe ask why it is you struggle to let things go. But we're encouraged to speak the truth, put away falsehood. One of the things you'll notice about this collection of actions here that kind of gathers some of them together is they're all horizontal. That is, that they're all about towards other people. Actually, a lot of stuff in common, really, with the Ten Commandments, and I think that's some of what's in Paul's mind here. Firstly, it's truth. Secondly, it's about anger, verses 26 to 27. Look, and here's our negative. Be angry and don't sin. It's quoting in part from Psalm 4, verse 4. There's an interesting thing there as well, that anger isn't always wrong. See what he's saying there. Actually, you can be angry, but don't sin in your anger. I think that's what it's saying here. Don't sin in your anger. Anger isn't always wrong, but sometimes it is. How can anger be wrong? Well, anger can be wrong when it's disproportionate, can't it? Anger can be wrong when it's not proportionate to what's happened to us. Um, we, when we were moving up here, I know some people will know this, but um, yeah, we, we had a couple of items stolen from us. And obviously that was uh, deeply sort of frustrating um, and things. But, uh, you know, when we told the, the, the kids about it, because it was a Christmas present, uh, and uh, Aaron's response was really interesting. It was really disproportionate because his response was, oh, you know, those thieves, they don't even deserve noses and mouths. I'm like, <laughs> okay, okay. Um, that's a bit brutal. Uh, they did a bad thing. And yeah, you know, not exactly planning on inviting them around for drinks, but uh, maybe not having a nose and a mouth might not be quite proportionate to the crime. Perhaps telling off and a disciplinary note would suffice. Sometimes our anger is not quite proportionate to what we've experienced. Secondly, anger can be wrong when it's simply just impatience. And we all know that it, that can happen, can't it? When actually the situation could have resolved if we just let it have a little time, we didn't need to jump straight in. We could have let things just settle a little. Anger's wrong when it's just impatience. Anger is wrong when it's illegitimate. Sometimes our anger is wrong because we are wrong. We sometimes mistake and misunderstand and get angry. And actually the problem is us. Anger can be wrong when it's destructive rather than being constructive or restorative. We all know those times in which we simply just want to be angry to be destructive with someone. And anger can be wrong when we're just being vengeful, when we're just trying to take vengeance. There's a great story I listened to the other day, the actor Terry Crews speaking about his dad. And if you've never seen Terry Crews, he's absolutely huge and uh, completely, you'd think he was just a bodybuilder, basically. Um, but he's speaking about his, his background and his dad, and he had had a very abusive, alcoholic, uh, uh, physically violent father. And speaking about one uh, occasion where actually years later, they sort of got together and he's visiting them and they're looking after his kids and, and actually he, he winds up attacking his mother again. He comes back and realizes what's happened. And he had built up all the muscles and everything over the years because he'd wanted to, to one day turn on his, on his dad and to, to give it back to him. And he talked to this occasion and actually winding up doing that. And uh, he, reflecting on it says, do you know, I didn't feel any better. I put all that work in because I thought I'd feel better when I did that, and I didn't. Vengeful anger is wrong. Never actually gives you the feeling you think it will give you. Don't sin in your anger. And yet, here's this positive. There's a negative. Don't sin in your anger, but here's a positive here. Don't let the sun go down. Don't let it fester. Just deal with it. 
Sometimes you'll need to let things go and that's the way you deal with it. But sometimes you'll need to deal with it with the person, but don't let it fester. The great song, Can't Stand Me Now by the Libertines, that talks about this experience between the two band members. Have we enough to keep it together or do we just keep on pretending and hope our love is never ending now? You tried to pull the wool, I wasn't feeling too clever and you take all their lending until you're, you need a mending now. You can't stand me now, can't stand me now. Talks of Carl Barat and Pete Doherty's relationship breaking down over the course of still working together as their anger was somehow felt easier to put in a song than to share with one another. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And what's the motivator here? Well, give no opportunity to the devil. Simmering anger can be twisted, can be used by the devil to tear people apart. So truth, anger, thirdly, is about theft. Verse 28 here, that the thief should no longer steal. There's the negative. Instead, here's the positive. They should do honest work with their hands. And what's the motivator? So that they may have something to share. It's not about what you can get, but what you can give. Fourthly, it's about your speech. Verse 29 here, let no corrupting talk. There's the negative come out of you. Instead, here's the positive. You should speak instead such as is good for building up. And what's the motivator? That it may give grace. You may build up others. And so we get this brief interlude here for a plea. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. When we hurt one another we're really hurting the spirit. In much the same way as Paul at his conversion is told by Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul had been persecuting Christians, but for Jesus, it's as good as persecuting him. And there's the plea, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by hurting one another. Fifthly, it's about love here. Look at verses 31 to 32. The, the, no bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, uh, slander, or malice. There's the negatives. And then here's the positive. Instead, be kind, be tenderhearted, forgiving. What's the motivator? As God in Christ forgave you. You're to love one another. And then we get a little break here, but we'll come back to this after. We'll skip ahead to chapter 5, verses 3 to 14, and carry on some of this list of imperatives here. And now Paul wants to speak uh, about sex here, and he gathers a few things together, doesn't he? He talks about the uh, sexual immorality and impurity uh, not being named among them, and covetousness. Ephesus was a city, as we said before, built on, uh, in many ways, a distorted view and the sale of uh, that view of sex. It was a city that was known for being one uh, of the homes of the seven wonders of the world, the temple to Diana or to Artemis or in other places, a fertility god of which there would be, you know, various and many, uh, you know, rituals attached with that, that Paul will have in his mind as he's uh, thinking about, you know, sexual immorality here. And instead, the call is to God's people to live a life of purity, not because they'd be afraid of sex or because they'd be negative about it, but actually, on the other hand, because the gospel actually has a higher view of sex, that it doesn't want to see it as a thing in which people, that it's a transaction and people become a commodity, as good to me as they are, so long as they're satisfying my desire. That's actually a very low view of sex, isn't it? It's a very low view of humanity that another person is simply a commodity to be used at my discretion. Paul has a very different view here that actually instead there be this dignity and respect of one another and of it. And that's why I think as well he puts in there the crude joking as well. I think it comes under really the same sort of idea that the talk of it and the handling of it and the approach to it, all of those things all come together of the way in which you view one another. Why is this so serious? Perhaps you might ask here. And in verses five to six, we get some indication of this, that, uh, of the severity of it, that everyone who is guilty of this, let me just find this here for us. If you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. 
Thank God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Why so serious on these things? Well, I think there's a specific problem here. You cannot claim to be a disciple and continue to practice these things. That's the issue here. It's not possible. Why? Why so? Why is this so serious? Well, in a way, at this point, Paul isn't commenting on the culture at wide so much. Of course, he could. There'd be plenty that you could say about that. But he's not commenting about the wider culture. Those things go on in the culture at large in Ephesus and around us too. And they're wrong and they will face judgment. But Paul's concern here is what goes on with those who are part of God's people. Much the same as he's done in other places. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 11, he writes to the Corinthians of specific problems they're experiencing. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. The, the problem for Paul here isn't so much what goes on out in the world. That's for God to deal with, and he will. But at this moment, what Paul's focused on is what goes on within those who claim to be the people of God. The problem is claiming to be dead to sin and alive in and for Christ, and yet not living as such. And in each of those things, and you might wonder why it might be that actually Sexual immorality is included in them with covetousness, that is idolatry. It maybe seems like a strange thing to sort of put together. Maybe one of those seems more offensive than another, more obviously offensive perhaps. Well, it all comes back to this idea of idolatry that he's put there. Because my little idol that I cling to, that thing that I refuse to let go of perhaps, and refuse to let Jesus stand over, well... We're called as disciples of Jesus to turn from everything that we once knew and for him to be Lord over everything. If you can't do that with something, if there's something that you just can't simply let go of, something that you want to keep on retaining, well, I could do 95%, but that 5% I need to retain, but I need to be able to do that. I can't be happy without that. Hmm then that is your real God. And it really is that simple. And that is the problem here. The real problem under these actions is about authority and identity and comfort. It's firstly about identity. It's about who gets to define who I am. The world says you decide and you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do, and nobody should question it. But the gospel says, you are who God says you are. And that is good news. Because who God says you are is that you're a child of his. That you're a disciple. That you're a servant. That you're a witness of his. But it's about identity. What defines who I am? Is it God or is it a little idol I'd like to keep hold of? It's about authority. It's about who has the final say in your life. The world says in the Coke advert from a few months ago, you do you. Nobody should ever dare question that. You're in charge. The gospel says Jesus is Lord and he says what is good, right and perfect, which is good news because he is good, right and perfect. And you can trust him. That when he says something to you, he's trustworthy but he has the final say. And thirdly, it's about comfort. It's about what is the point of my life. The world says the point of your life is to do whatever makes you feel good. Don't let anybody stop you or hold you back from that because the purpose of your life is your own comfort. The gospel says you are not your own. You are bought with a price. You just serve Christ. And therein seems to be the problem. That for some, there is this temptation that the old life is one they never quite leave. 
and one that they turn back to. Let no one deceive you with empty words, he says, and that implies there are some there who are doing so. Some there who are, and we experience it today, even say, well, no, there's no need to make such a division. Yeah, of course you can have those things. You can carry on in those things and still follow Jesus. Of course you can. Let no one deceive you with empty words. We're called instead here, verses 7 to 14, he gives us some more imperatives here, to walk in the light. Don't associate with them. At one time you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. You're no longer to walk as you once did, and you're tempted maybe to do in some ways in darkness, but to walk in the light as children of light. Verse 9 here, the fruit of light is found in all things good and right and true. Those of the light walk in the light and do works of light. There's a different perspective here. Notice it here in verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Do you see how utterly different that is to the message of the world? Try to discern what is being different to our former life, to the life that the world points us towards. Instead, verse 11 to 12, we take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. And there's a kind of legal language that Paul uses here. Take no part in. Don't become an accomplice in. It means don't become an accomplice in unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose. Those prove wrong with evidence them. Take no part in, for it's shameful to speak of the things they do in secret. And yet we get this counterintuitive truth. It doesn't seem to make sense in some ways. And yet we know it to be true if we know Christ and we're following him. That Verse 13, when anything's exposed by the light, it becomes visible. What becomes visible is light. Look at that contrast. Coming to and walking in the truth actually leads to light and to life. That might not always feel as though it makes sense. It's not easy sometimes, is it, when we become aware of ways in which we fall short? Thinking about that right at the beginning this morning, it's always easy to become aware of the ways in which I fall short of other people's expectations and my own expectations and certainly of God's. That's not easy. It's not nice. You wouldn't think it would be a nice experience to come into the light and to be exposed And yet Paul says, much the same as what John has said in his gospel, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the great reality that Paul's trying to get across to us. It might not seem it. It might seem painful. It might seem uncomfortable. But you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Finally, uh, Verses 1 to 2 there of chapter 5, we got that little break, didn't we, that we skipped over at the time, but we'll come back to now, where we see that it's about the imitation game. Um, when we were living in the Midlands in, in Bridge North, um, Isaac, I don't know how old he would have been there. He would have been very young. Uh, but I would often walk down, so there was a high town and a low town. And we didn't have a car, so I would, I would walk down there and I would do a lot of my working in cafes down there. So I'd have a rucksack with sort of all my different books and things that I was reading and using for different stuff uh, and do that and you know children have this way that they want to imitate their parents don't they so we'd often find that you know Isaac uh, a young lad he, he would start to pack his own little bag with stuff and say oh, I'm, I'm going off to work like dad I don't know what it is about kids it's very sweet isn't it but they they often want to imitate their parents and this is what Paul is calling us to here that we be imitators of God as beloved children It's a brief break between the two quite heavy sections, (laughs) uh, really of quite challenging sort of material, putting things off and putting things on. It's giving us a rationale for it. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Our Our God is a good and loving father, so we're called to imitate him, to walk in love, verse two, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, just as he has sacrificed himself for us and given himself up for us. There's an element of the Christian life that is giving up ourselves. That is sacrificing. What Paul has said in very practical and specific imperatives here about putting on and putting off is what it means to walk in love. Uh, See, 
challenges us here. We see that the gospel isn't an intellectual proposition for you to agree with or disagree with. Jesus isn't asking you to agree with him. Frankly, he's not so insecure as to need you to agree with him. You know, you and I, we, we need other people to agree with us and to approve us at times because we all have that element of it. Jesus doesn't. The gospel isn't an intellectual proposition to agree with or disagree with. It's a way of life that reshapes all you are, all you think, all you say and all you do. And so lastly, Paul encourages us here to get serious in verses 15 to 21. I wonder if you ever really think about the way in which you walk. I guess I'm meaning just literally how you walk, not as a metaphor. I doubt you sort of really do. There's a wonderful scene in um, the political comedy, The Thick of It, in which the uh, potential sort of prime minister is, is such a, well, the, the word that's given for is omni-shambles, uh, that even walking to the sort of cenotaph with a wreath becomes this desperately sort of anxiety filling thing that, oh my goodness, am I going to get the walk wrong? Uh, and in fact, actually, she even does. Uh, but here we're being encouraged to actually think about something we might not tend to think so much about, to be thinking seriously about the way in which we walk. And the point here in the first few verses here, 15 to 18, is about mentality. The way in which your mentality affects the way in which you live. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. The world says the same. Make the most use of your time. Make the best of it. But it says that you do that through different things. It says that you make the most of your time by avoiding responsibility, by not being held back by responsibilities, by becoming more irresponsible, by accumulating what you can whilst you're here, by sampling as many experiences as you can whilst you've got the time. It says carpe diem, or you only live once. The secret to effective living, though, isn't to be careless or to be carefree, but to be careful. Verse 17, don't be foolish, negative, and then the positive, but understand the will of the Lord. How do we grow? Well, we grow as we grow in understanding of God's will. Verse 18, don't get drunk. Yeah, positive, but be being filled with the Spirit. Don't seek to escape reality through alcohol, but think more clearly through the Spirit. It's all about man mentality here. And then lastly, it's about fruits in verses 19 to 21. All the fruits here actually come from that being filled with the Spirit and from that mentality shift. And actually, look at what it does to serve the benefit of the community. I wonder if the thing you might notice about all of those things to put off and yet on the other hand to put some other things on, they are all things that break up relationships, aren't they? They are all things that put tension and ultimately many times can uh, end in the dissolution of relationships. It's all the practical wisdom to Paul's talk before of the church being a body that needs to grow up together. But now look at the fruits from being filled with the Spirit. There's three that we see here in particular. Firstly, praise, look at verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Notice the direction of that as well. That's addressing one another you know, to each other here. So that worship is a mentality. It's about what you think. The more seriously you treat your faith, the more heartfelt, uh, the more habitual, the more creative our worship will be. It's a result of being filled with the Spirit instead of having this serious approach to our walk. But secondly, it's about thankfulness. Verse 20, to be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the direction of that. The first one, the direction was toward one another. Now this is actually up towards God. There's a thankfulness that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit and taking a serious approach to our walk. We give thanks for all that he's given. And thirdly, we see a submission. Look at verse 21 there with me, that we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
There's a, a deference and a preference for others over myself. And look what feeds it. A reverence for Christ. So that I may well ask myself, if I struggle to prefer others, perhaps my problem is really how I view Jesus. I might not be viewing him quite highly enough if I'm finding it difficult to prefer others above myself. Look at all the wonderful realities of what happens when the Spirit continues to be filling us together. You might, as you listen to a lot of that, think that is an awful lot to take in. <laughs> and there's a lot of commands. That is a lot of, you know, kind of uh, directive stuff, isn't it? Feels a bit overwhelming. And so we come back to where we started at the beginning of saying that in Paul's mind here, sanctification, becoming more like God, is linked to us being made right before God. Being made right before God, our justification came solely through grace, not through works. We didn't do anything to earn it. We don't do anything to contribute to it. How then do we come to a passage like this that places so much upon us? How can we find any sort of sense of hope at the end of it? Well, you know, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll think of the armor of God that helps us with that. But for now, because I don't want to leave you sort of unsure in the time in between. When Paul has prayed before for them and said of how God could do immeasurably more than they may ask or imagine, I think it is exactly this that he was thinking of. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, he says, chapter 3, verse 14, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What is the hope at the end of a passage like this? Can we really sit there and hope that we might actually begin to look like this? Yes. Because Christ is in us. On the one hand, you might look at that passage and think, Oh my goodness, this, is, this just feels just so impossible. The one who can do more than we can ever ask or imagine is within us. Just as we're saved solely by God's grace, even our becoming more like him is completely because of what he is doing within us. Paul writes to the Philippians just a few months later on, think work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure and do you know what the good news is the good news is that on the one hand he will help you to do these things to work for his good pleasure but even more important even more significant he'll work to change your will to want to do it the good news this morning is not to try to pull your bootstraps up and work harder, be better, be more. But is to come to Jesus empty-handed, trusting in him, depending upon him, as always. And knowing and relying on him to come good on his word. I'll pray for us and then we will um, sing a closing song together. Again, yeah, down at Showcase we won't, we won't be able to sing that, but we can certainly meditate on those on those words together father god i thank you for your wonderful grace towards us lord each of us in different ways has lived has known what it's like to live a life outside of you and a, live a life falling short in lots of different ways some of those obvious some of those not obvious some of those that people will know and some of those that will be pretty glad that people don't know we'll each know what it feels like to be in that place of not quite making the grade to whatever extent and in whatever way. 
Lord, I thank you that this morning the message is not, as it so often is in the world outside us, that the only hope of anything better is, is us making it happen, of us straining and struggling and striving to make ourselves more. We all each know the frustration and the futility of having tried to do that at moments of our life, having tried desperately hard to not do those things that we know to be wrong, that we know to be destructive in our life to us and others. We each know that frustration. And so Lord, I thank you that the good news this morning is that we have Christ in us. For those of us this morning turning our faith to you, not only do you make us right before yourself, but by you being present with us, working in us powerfully, you are making us more and more into your image. Lord Jesus, this morning, I pray that you would help encourage us to know that we're in the fight, to give us the strength to keep getting up when there might be places in which we continue to struggle and continue to fall at times. Help us to keep getting up. And Spirit, give us the grace, I pray, to be able to land a few shots, to be able to see some signs of growth in different areas of our life. And Lord, we pray that you might bless us, that you might uh, allow us to flourish and to grow so that we might encourage and support and bless one another. That we might, as a church together, grow up into the fullness of adulthood together, being able to support one another and bless and build up one another by each being on this journey of being more and more shaped into your image. Lord, we thank you that with unveiled faces, you are transforming us from one degree of glory to another. We thank you that the good news this morning is not simply to just try harder, to manage our behavior better, to put on a front, but it is to come to you open, empty, weary, and to be filled. Thank you for your grace. And I pray, Spirit, that each person hearing, whether at home or here at Showcase, will be reminded now of your gracious love and care towards them. For your glory, we ask it. Amen.